Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And on this month's Paper Scraps, we'll be taking a look at uh, outdated scripts, voiceover, pilots pitching, as well as uh, some uh, TV business news about WGA demands, new OTTs, and of course, COVID. Now, obviously, there has been a lot going on in the world in recent weeks and months, not just COVID, but of course, uh, police brutality, racism, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we actually recorded this episode before the death of George Floyd. So unfortunately, we were, were unable to address a lot of that in substance, including including stuff like the uh, letter written to the WGA recently uh, and any relevant entertainment updates in our TV news section. But um, we just wanted to let you know that we are planning on doing so in future episodes. Uh, We want to properly acknowledge uh, these issues and not stay silent. We fully support the Black Lives Matter movement, and we want to dedicate our time and resources to addressing these issues, particularly in the entertainment industry. Um, in upcoming episodes uh, with some special guests. So please stay tuned for that. Absolutely. And uh, in the meantime, since we have been off the air for a little bit now, let's share what we have been up to over the earlier part of the break. All right. So we are back from our little uh, COVID break. How uh, have uh, things been with you? I mean, I guess as well as they can be in the middle of all this kind of craziness. So yeah, obviously we took a break from the podcast for a couple of reasons. Hopefully you all didn't miss us too much, but uh, we are (laughs) back for good now. I have just been trying to keep busy, a mixture of being productive by working on writing projects. I'm actually like producing a feature film that a friend is shooting in his apartment with the people he's quarantined with. So that's been interesting and a challenge. Also just trying to balance that with relaxing and staying sane and centered and all that kind of stuff and spending time with my wife. How about you? Yeah, uh, it's been interesting because the last time I was on the podcast, uh, I was talking about how essentially my schedule was kind of insane. I was dealing with a lot of like personal stuff. And now it's been a little bit of like feast and famine thing where my room actually wrapped a little bit earlier than expected. We had a little bit of an episode cut in part due to a lack of production potentially. I mean, all that is uh, up in the air, but essentially the room wrapped. And so now I have uh, all the time uh, in the world. It's kind of like that Twilight Zone episode where <laughs> I have all this media accessible. <laughs> I'm by myself. And so I'm just uh, catching up on shows. I've been watching The Expanse, The Outsider, a bunch of other stuff. But it's been interesting. I mean, working on myself, working on my own writing, uh, doing some uh, self-care as people should mm-hmm. be doing in these times. But as uh, probably you can hear or, or as our listeners can hear, we are still recording remotely for obvious reasons. And so really, that's going to be at least the the workflow moving forward is we're using online applications to record. So the sound quality might be slightly off. I feel like personally, I think the sound quality is pretty good. I remember the first COVID uh, episode, or at least the latest COVID episode that we did when we wrapped was in mid-April. Mm-hmm. Uh, that episode was, the audio quality wasn't fantastic because we're just using the raw Zoom recording. And so now we've sort of found a way to uh, do it, uh, you know, n- another way. So hopefully the sound recording isn't too bad you should be at least hearing my own local microphone and then hopefully nick's audio quality is good as well yeah so thank you all for understanding our need to take a little break there and now we are back in the thick of it as fellowship season's ramping up we hope that our big fellowship episode was useful to you unfortunately we did miss doing one for abc disney just because the timing didn't line up with them and with us but we are happy to announce that we will be having one coming up very soon in fact next week for the nickelodeon fellowship we are going to be talking to Catherine Wells, who runs the Nickelodeon program. 
and they are doing their program a little bit later this year. It's opening up, uh, I think, July 1st through to August 1st. And that is, you know, the Nickelodeon program that you know and love focused on animation and kids stuff, both preschool and general older kids uh, with a few little, you know, tweaks this year. They're doing some things differently. So make sure you tune in and get all the info uh, for that. Yeah, they've changed a few things, uh, notably in their application process and what they're looking for in terms of scripts and so forth. So we definitely recommend you listen to that episode because this is kind of the only deep dive that they've done, at least so far, about all the changes and what they're looking for in uh, both the application, but the candidates and also the evolution of the program in the era of COVID. So uh, definitely a must here. And that's coming to uh, PP team listeners next week. And now let's move on to some of our Twitter mentions, because even though we were gone, our listeners, I suppose, missed us a lot and <laughs> wanted to share the love. So we had uh, a few uh, Twitter mentions that we wanted to uh, bring up. The first one is from Steve Kimura, who said, thank you for your notes on my teaser in your February podcast, especially about my formatting problems. Uh, I should note that the reason the CIA is interested in Allison is her ability to put together a band, and that is addressed in the next act. So if, if you all remember that one, it was the manager of the boy band being recruited by the CIA, which was a fun teaser. So thanks for, for writing into us, Steve. And we always appreciate feedback and interactions from our listeners. Absolutely. And on that note, actually, we also had a pretty substantial Twitter thread and mention from Peter Hayward, who just binged through all of Paper Team and had several observations and takeaways that he got from our podcast, which was fantastic. And so just the, the top of the tweet was Peter saying, today, I caught up on my new favorite podcast, Paper Team. In the most recent episode, they joked that no one had probably listened all the way through to every episode. Listening to TV Calling and NJ Watson over 177 episodes has been an incredible incredible education. And I'm sure we can go down. Well, I mean, I feel like it would take a whole other podcast to go down the list of all the takeaways that he got because it, it was a lot. But we'll definitely link that little uh, thread in the show notes uh, for this episode. But it was really amazing to see uh, at least one person besides us has listened to every episode <laughs> of the podcast. I think one of the funniest parts for me was just his observation of how both of our accents slowly slipped away and became more Americanized from our first uh, episode <laughs> through to the last. So. I wonder if we could do like a recreation of the first episode and just play it side by side and <laughs> share it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would be pretty funny. Yeah. All right, let's get into some of your own TV writing questions. And uh, the first one comes from a longtime listener and a longtime writer, Arta Torosian, who sent us a pretty substantial email about rewriting and especially perspective on uh, your scripts. So she says, hi there, guys. How are you? I hope you are faring well in these uncanny times. I'm writing with a question about rewrites, but more specifically, the evolution of writers as reflected by their scripts. Have you ever pulled out an old draft and found it to be immature? Do you think all of your former work is still representative of you? As we grow and evolve, so does our writing. Not just the craft, like formatting, flow, etc., but the depth of our ideas, the subject matter, the way you execute your vision. I was recently rewriting a script, and I found it to be quite out of sync with my current views. As we go through life and gather experiences, our perspective inevitably changes, but also the culture changes. The language regarding certain issues evolves. So do you have scripts that you had to update because they felt outdated or no longer relevant? Maybe the moment for a storyline 
like that has passed or you just don't connect to the material anymore. Maybe it felt right at the time to the person you were, but it doesn't feel right to you who you are now. Uh, either way, I'd love to hear your thoughts on making your old scripts feel fresh and timely. Stay safe and keep making the show. It helps us all feel more connected. Yeah, that's a, a fantastic question. And I think that that observation is very accurate, especially for comedy writers, I think that there's quite a lot that changes culturally in terms of what is considered funny, what is considered socially acceptable, what is taboo, things like that. If you look at comedy films from the 90s, the kind of humor that you have in something like Ace Ventura, Austin Powers, or whatever, a lot of that is highly offensive today. And, you know, maybe it even was back then, but the majority of people just didn't feel the same way about that. So, you know, people's viewpoints and opinions and the general consensus of what's acceptable uh, changes. And that's true on a societal level. And that's true on an individual level, too. So I think that makes a lot of sense that you might be going through an old script and finding stuff that you don't agree with anymore or stuff that you thought was funny at the time and really isn't anymore. So that's something to bear in mind. Yeah, I definitely agree, especially in terms of comedy, but also drama and dramedies. I was actually rewatching recently Ally McBeal, which was a late 90s, early 2000s show by David D. Kelly with Calista Flockhart. I mean, it's an iconic show to me because I used to watch it with my mom when uh, I was younger, and it was sort of almost the nostalgia of watching it to really see, uh, does it hold up? In fact, my initial impetus for watching it was because it features the first uh, TV death that I ever saw that was... Uh, it was a pretty uh, substantial uh, and well-done death on TV. But long story short, a lot of the content on that show has really aged like milk. It really, some of those uh, legal cases, especially because most of the show is about sexual harassment lawsuits and things like that, which... I compare it to sort of like an, uh, well, I mean, obviously it happened before Shonda Rhimes and Ron Murphy, but sort of like a prototypical edgy Ron Murphy slash Shonda Rhimes type cases. However, they seem to mostly be from the wrong side. <laughs> it was actually funny to watch because all of the topics that the show covers are still pretty relevant, whether it's about sexual harassment or uh, trans rights or all those different topics that in the 90s were uh, especially provocative, but they always took the side of kind of, I feel like the perpetrator as opposed to the victim, or at least the person that would be the victim in today's society. And so I feel like that really biases the whole show in the wrong direction. So I feel like a lot of it has a shit like milk, but to Varda's point, I feel like a lot of it evolves and that's a natural part of life. I feel like that's, just to go back to the comedy side of it, that's another recurring thing with something like Friends. A lot of people are saying how they should cancel Friends, retroactively speaking, because it doesn't hold up to today's values and, and because the show is so white. And you can obviously criticize those things, but you got to understand the era in which some of those pieces of content are being created. Now, when it comes to their own writing uh, per se, I feel like we all go through our own journeys. I mean, personally, I feel like most of my scripts are not outdated because, I mean, objectively speaking, I was you know, haven't been writing for that much amount of time where, you know, the societal values have changed in the way that I have changed or the way that I write. Obviously, on the craft level, it evolves, but on, in terms of storytelling perspectives and who I want my lead characters to be, I haven't really bumped on that yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you're writing, the ideal is always to try to find something that's universal and relatable and timeless in a way so that it, you can people can always come back to it and appreciate it. Uh, it's not always easy. But I would say that comedy perhaps suffers a little bit more from trying to stay current and relevant and topical, especially if you're doing something that involves any amount of satire or pop culture reference. I think you'll find that stuff dates very quickly. I was even just looking at a, a sketch packet I wrote a couple of years ago 
before Trump was elected. And one of the sketches involved making fun of what life would be like under a Trump presidency. And now it's, it's all too real and it's not funny anymore. It's just drama. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff you got to consider, but you know, in terms of how you could perhaps update those kinds of things to be fresh and timely, I think it's a case by case basis. Some of that you might be able to tweak in such a way where, you know, so many issues societally recur over and over again. I mean, look at what's happening today in in the streets compared to the sixties and the civil rights movement and that kind of thing. These kind of things, you know, history repeats itself. So in a way you might be able to take a more current version of that issue or whatever and, and rework it to fit that. But, you know, other things might just be inextricably tied to such a specific part of a history or culture or something that is just so dated that you, it's best to just leave it behind and start something new because you should always be writing new, fresh content. To that point, I feel like it definitely seems easier to at least update some of the comedy in the context of, you know, if it's a joke or two here and there that may seem a bit outdated, then sure, you, I feel like that's very, quote unquote, easily updatable. But in terms of keeping that script fresh and timely, I feel like a a lot of the the societal issues, like again, to go back to whether it's like Friends or Ally McBeal or all those shows, those are almost fundamental story perspectives. So it would be really hard to do a quick rewrite pass and just switch sides from a legal case, for example, or dramatical beat that would, for some reason, be from another person's perspective. Uh, now, I feel like that's a more fundamental change. And so I'm with Nick in the sense of if it is a question of like updating the more fundamental parts of the story. If it is something that's intrinsically tied to your pilot or your spec, I mean, to Nick's point, I feel like you could either leave it behind if it's something that would presumably be such a substantial change that you would have to do a page one rewrite and then perhaps do a new show or pilot or script in that universe. If that is actually appealing to you, if when you reread it, you are appalled by maybe the way you were tackling certain issues, then there's no harm in writing a new sample that does tackle those issues in the way you are thinking about them right now. Obviously, we all evolve and we all grow as people and as writers. So it's perfectly natural for someone to read their past version of it. It's sort of like a larger version of vomit draft thing where, you know, you're pouring your heart out into a draft and then you reread it and you realize, oh, wait, I need to edit half of this because it's all crap. So essentially, if we update it, if it's a micro version, but if it's a larger sort of a more um, structural issue or character perspective or story perspective issue, then I would probably advise more to do a whole other sample than just rewriting the one you have. And on that note, our next question comes from Stacy Michelle, who sent us an email saying, hi guys, I'm dizzy to discover your podcast while I'm writing two original comedy pilots, single cam, for submissions to several diversity writing programs. Your Grey's Anatomy example of on the nose voiceover is hilarious and a great example. Comedy wise, which shows do you endorse as best use of voiceover and which should I stay away from to emulate? Thinking within the context of your podcast advice, everybody hates Chris voiceovers made me laugh, but the Goldberg's voiceover kind of meh. P.S. Upon reading the Goldberg's pilot script, I realized only after listening to your podcast that the narrator, Adam, is passive in the pilot, and I am not clear on whether his voiceover meets the standards you all spoke of. I would really appreciate your opinions. This is another great question. Thanks for writing in, Stacey. I would say... Voiceover is always a tricky thing. I think that, you know, some shows manage to balance it well, others not so well. 
I think I'm going to point out some examples of what I see to be good voiceover in comedy shows more so than the bad. That way you can you know, perhaps follow in those examples. And the big one that comes to mind for me is Arrested Development. I think that the voiceover narrator there done by Ron Howard is a really incredible interaction with what's going on on the screen in terms of the action, the characters that are being presented, the juxtaposition of everything. I think that that is one of the perfect examples of just how to do it right. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. I feel like one of the greatest things about the Arrested Development voiceover is that it's a narrator. It's essentially someone who is leaning into the story, but not just narrating what's happening, but actually almost commenting on what is happening for the benefit of the audience. So it's sort of like a tongue-in-cheek meta analysis of what's going on. And so that adds to the show's sort of bizarre, quirky humor, as opposed to something that is only just describing things that we're just seeing in plain view. And if you want a good example of, uh, you know, a lead character doing that kind of voiceover thing about their own lives or what they're going through or what they're thinking, I think a good example of that done well is Scrubs with JD. And again, that's because it, he doesn't just stick closely to like, and then Mrs. So-and-so came in as a patient for whatever, and we diagnosed her with something, you know, like occasionally it fulfills those kind of expositional functions. But the majority of the time, it's reflecting some of JD's like inner turmoil about an issue, or, you know, it does get into that Grey's Anatomy kind of like teaching everybody a lesson about what they learned at the end of the day, but it's handled in such a way that feels authentic. It doesn't just feel like we're getting exactly what we already know. And uh, it's usually done with humor and with heart. So I think that, you know, if you're looking for a good example of voiceover, I would point to most of the time scrubs for that. Yeah. And this is definitely not a, a comedy by any means, but I, I will also mention a Mr. Robot that does voiceover well in the context of having essentially an unreliable narrator. A Mr. Robot, especially the first season is basically Fight Club, the TV show. So they really lean into the fact that, oh, we think we can believe what's happening and we're getting inside the mind of the lead character. Character, but in fact, we are sort of taken into this other ride with him that may or may not be the objective truth. It's only sort of the subjective experience that he's giving us. Uh, so that's really a good way, actually, in my mind, to do something with the voiceover is sort of if you are doing a voiceover with a protagonist as opposed to a third party narrator type, what experience do you want to bring to the table? Do you want it to be sort of a subjective, biased take? At least that, that would be my approach initially, as opposed to a protagonist that essentially behaves like an objective third-party narrator, which doesn't really bring anything new to the table. So just knowing the perspective, the point of view really brings a lot to the table in my mind. And our next question comes from Tyler, who says, I was wondering if you could clarify whether a pilot script is needed to pitch a one-hour TV drama. I've heard that I need to produce a pilot script before performing any kind of pitch, though, but I'm simply not a screenwriter and I don't necessarily want to become one. If the show is picked up, the writing for each episode will be done by a team who are better qualified later on. I've built the concept for an original show with numerous characters, unique setting, and incredible lore, but I'm more interested in having the TV show created and providing creative consulting, so selling the idea or the concept and receiving episodic fees rather than becoming the writer for the series. How would I sell that? Please let me know if you have any suggestions. Would it be worth trying to send out my pitch document and show Bible to managers or a production company or straight to an agency? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question, and I believe we've already tackled this previously, but the short version of that is you can't really sell a show and then walk away from it, especially if you are someone with very little active experience. The only context in which I know of someone who is not a TV writer selling a show is either someone who's successful in another area, like let's say a playwright or a movie director or a feature screenwriter, that sort of thing, or 
uh, someone with an IP that's a really well-liked IP, George R. R. Martin or someone like that who can actually bring to the table something that a team of writers can then carry over into something else. Now, in terms of the manager part of it, I really feel like most managers would not represent sort of like a one-trick pony, so to speak, in the sense of they would not represent someone to just sell a show. At most, I would think like a lawyer would probably be the better solution if you are actively selling a show and all the pieces are in place. In that case, uh, maybe an entertainment lawyer would be probably better suited than a manager. But I mean, I am hard-pressed to really think of examples of sort of unknown writers selling a TV show from the onset. Yeah, by and large in the television industry, creators are writers. Those two words are kind of synonymous with each other. I think that if, you know, if you're serious about selling the show, then your best bet is probably, you know, you're essentially describing what you want to be as a producer. You want to be a, you know, a creative producer, you know, someone who has their own production company or someone who independently produces television, film, that kind of thing. And in that case, what you need to do as a producer is go and find a writer to write this idea for you. You know, typically you would pay them to write the script and develop it. And then you own that script and that property. And then you can go out and you can say, here's a show and here's the execution of it. I didn't write it myself, but I'm producing it because I came up with the idea and I developed it and I've got all this stuff in place. So I think that that's really the one way that you would be able to do something like this. And in that case, if the show and the execution was good enough, uh, it may not matter that you're not an experienced producer or you're, you know, no one really knows who you are if something is, is good and you've managed to execute it through paying a writer to do that and whatever you know process you go through, then great. Otherwise, I think you are going to have a hard time just trying to sell something on an idea because as we've said time and time again, ideas aren't really worth anything. It's the execution of those ideas. Exactly. Yeah. And, and to that point, I mean, the packaging idea, I feel like to me is the most intriguing idea. I mean, that is how you sell a show if you are not an active staff TV writer with credentials. But even those people who are able to package things together still have some ability to write, especially if they have a pilot script or they're the one ones who wrote that pilot script, the understanding behind that is, oh, you're actually an active writer. You are a writer. You're not a producer by any means. You are a writer who wrote this pilot script, and therefore you probably have other samples, and therefore you would probably want to be creatively involved, as opposed to someone who is more of a producer type who came up with an idea and then wrote a script. So don't get me wrong. I do feel like you can definitely sell a show in the context of, you know, you have a, a pilot script, and then you can package it with maybe an EP or showrunner or, or talent or an IP. All those things are very doable, but where I sort of push back is on the idea that an idea person is going to sell an idea and then walk away from that idea. I don't really find that to be uh, feasible unless, uh, like I said before, you have an incredible IP that everybody wants, or you're already in auspice in a different medium than TV, like a, a feature writer or a playwright or a book author or some someone like that who really has a lot of pedigree and, and credentials in another area that they can then parlay and leverage into that TV show. Yeah. The only other thing I could see happening, and it is kind of related to IP, is if this show is literally like your life story and your experiences and your unique point of view that no one else has in the world. And it's so interesting and intriguing that a production company or studio or network or whatever is willing to buy essentially the rights to your story and then develop that into something. But you know, usually that would require you've done something extraordinary in your life or gone through some kind of experience that's, that's unique and yeah. uh, is worthy of telling a story about. And even in that world, I would argue that probably assuming your life story is incredible and you've gone through incredible hardship, more than likely, if those stories uh, actually occurred, I would expect probably a news article of some sort to be in existence or a book uh, before a TV show. And then that would be optioned into a TV show, right? Like the, there's been a, a 
plenty of movies and shows that are based on in-depth news articles, uh, something like from the New Yorker or investigative journalism from the Atlantic, any such thing, or obviously like a bio uh, book. But again, it, it ties back to an IP, something that's being delivered outside of the TV show medium to then be translated into a TV show. All right. And if you have any more questions for the podcast, you can always send them in to ask at and we're happy to answer any thoughts and questions you might have. All right, let's get into some TV writing news. Uh, we've been off for a couple of months now, and there's been a lot happening, especially with COVID. I don't feel like we need to rehash everything that's been happening in the world. That's pretty self-explanatory. But I did come across, uh, our writer's room was sharing this article from Reuters about uh, how there's a lot of COVID-19 consultants being hired to help keep sets safe uh, during this pandemic, or at least when they're bringing production back up. So I think that's an interesting idea of just how production is going to look like in the near future. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's such a huge, huge issue right now. And it's what basically all of live action is grappling with, whether they're on the development studio side, waiting to see when they can possibly shoot things again, or whether you're part of a, a physical production crew and you're waiting to see when you can work again. You know, there's been people essentially waiting around to see what the governor of California is going to release in terms of his guidelines for film TV work. And there's also what the unions have to say about all of this, because, you know, the governor can say whatever he wants, but if the unions aren't happy with the conditions for their members to go back to work, then we're going to be in a lot of trouble. So basically going to be a huge part of production moving forward until you know, we can uh, develop a vaccine and be really safe about this. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, th this episode that you're listening to right now is probably going to be released after those guidelines from the city or the state are released. So who knows what those will look like? I mean, personally, just looking at the guidelines that have already circulated, whether it's from some production companies or even outside the US, I'm uh, very wary about what the immediate production is going to look like, especially because my fear is that on one hand, you're going to have basically people forced to sign waivers to work saying, can't sue us if you get COVID working here. And then on the flip side, you have essentially PAs having the job of decontaminating everything. Uh, I feel like that's the risk. And PAs, first of all, they're paid terribly. And second of all, they're not supposed to be in that role of being the sanitary person to really keep the entire set safe for everyone to work in. So I feel like that's really the danger is uh, because they're going to require those sort of COVID-19 consultants or people to help out on set, that responsibility is going to go to the lowest paid person, usually the PA, to really work that as opposed to uh, proactively creating a safe working environment, especially because PAs don't really have unions. So I feel like that's really the big risk in my mind. And there's certainly an issue in terms of studios pushing for smaller and smaller crews out of the auspices of saying, well, it's safer this way because there's less people coming into contact with each other, which is true. But at the same time, you're also then understaffing your productions. So, you know, you're expecting more people to do more roles that they're not traditionally paid for. People are going to be overworked. You know, maybe that's going to affect their health, things like that. So we need to really be careful about that and just, you know, undermining and eroding basically the system we already had in place, uh, which is equitable for workers on 
under you know union guidelines and you know expecting people to take on three different roles that should be realistically paid for three different people and you know the studio mm-hmm. is going to love that because they will save money but you know it will inevitably end up being bad for the crew absolutely and that's where i'm hoping all the guilds and the unions are able to bend together to really force safety for all and not just the people they represent because i feel like if we because we're all in this together in essence so really we need to look out for each other even on sets even in terms of safety protocols and so forth the other thing i will mention is i'm personally a bit uh, wary also of just the future of production because i feel like beyond you know the thought of a second covid wave and, and putting that aside for a moment just the idea of production restarting i really feel like there's going to be a second sort of moment of realization kind of like the first moment when lockdown happened of production stopping where there's going to be a point where people on a practical level are going to be realizing that we cannot produce the same way we produced before. And I feel like that's going to put a stop to a lot of writing because a lot of rooms, a lot of content is going to be written and either unproducible or not fully producible under these current COVID conditions. So when the studios and the production companies realize and the networks and so forth realize that they have essentially a backlog of scripts that they are waiting and sitting on to be produced, I really am a bit afraid that they're going to be shutting down a lot of rooms moving forward. I'm hoping I'm wrong, obviously, but that's definitely a concern that's in my mind just moving forward. Yeah, it feels like they'll definitely hit a bottleneck in terms of writers might still be able to work remotely for now. But, you know, once production, you know, takes a while to get going again, like you said, there might be a lack of work for writers moving forward. And unfortunately, you know, perhaps that's going to coincide with the negotiations with the studios as well. And that might undermine some of the leverage that the writers have. Well, on that note, we should uh, mention the next topic, which is those guild demands and calls. And one of the big calls that the guild is making is to eliminate those new writer discounts and training program rates. Essentially, those diversity slots, or at least diversity pay slots, that allowed cheaper entryway for new writers and diversity and training programs to uh, get hired on staff, because the studios and the production companies would pay less money as opposed to just the you know the guild minimum, so to speak. And so, really, the guild is cracking down on that uh, moving forward, which I think is really interesting because it really shows unity in the context of we are all in this together we all deserve to be paid more or at least equal as everyone else there's no reason why certain people will be paid less uh, because they're newer or because they are from a training program yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a really great step forward. And I think that will help to eliminate some of those barriers between those writers being taken seriously or not. You know, my only concern, I guess, is that hopefully this doesn't have the unwanted impact of then people hiring less diverse writers because they're used to getting them for these cheap rates or whatever, or these year free in the writer's room. And so suddenly we see things swing back the other way and people's kind of biases show back through again. But I think either way, this is still the right call moving forward to create the new normal and uh, be fair and equitable to everybody. Yeah, I mean, I don't see that necessarily happening, especially because of public call for uh, diversity and so forth. And even if you look at the current stats, I mean, uh, the stats have been updated in a couple of years, but even two years ago, in the lower level bracket, it was 50-50 in terms of gender. And I think the numbers are definitely, especially on the lower level, obviously the upper level is (laughs) still appalling, but the lower levels at least are almost parity as far as I know. So those training, it does make sense then that why the guild wouldn't then you know, try to reinstate uh, equal pay across the board, especially if, you know, those quote unquote quotas are satisfied in that capacity. So we'll see how things go. 
right. And the next topic of news we wanted to cover was the release of Quibi, the, uh, <laughs> the new <laughs> streaming service abbreviated from Quick Bytes, uh, run by Jeffrey Katzenberg, amongst others who was formerly, you know, head of DreamWorks. And essentially, they designed this entire streaming service around the idea of people watching short pieces of content, 10 minutes or less, on the go, uh, you know, in line at Starbucks, on the train, in their commute, you know, whatever it happens to be in the morning, you know, before work. And then suddenly, <laughs> coronavirus hit, and everybody had all the time in the world. And, you know, that is, you know, at least their reason for it's essentially, you know, it's lack of success so far. They've, they've really not had as many subscribers as they'd hoped. They're not making as much money as they'd hoped. Advertisers are starting to kind of pull out. And it's by all accounts, it's been kind of a, a failure for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're trying to scapegoat COVID as the reason why Quibi failed. I mean, personally, I don't believe Quibi was ever going to succeed. In fact, Verizon a few years ago did something called Go90, which was basically Quibi before Quibi, and that failed dramatically. In fact, if you don't know what Go90 is, that's kind of my point. <laughs> and, and Quibi is similar because it's essentially the worst of both worlds. Because on one hand, you have, you know, your Netflix and your Disney Plus, which ask for five, $15 a month, uh, you know, streaming cost, and you get very, very high quality entertainment. You want to pay for that content. It's tremendous. And on the flip side, you have your TikTok and your YouTube, which is usually pretty low in terms of quality, but it's free and it's ad-sponsored usually. And Quibi is positioning itself in the middle of that where it's essentially delivering a YouTube or TikTok-like experience with the cost of a Netflix or Disney Plus subscription. So to me, that's where the intrinsic issue lies is Quibi is kind of competing from both ends and offering a weak middle ground as opposed to committing into something that maybe could be ad sponsored, but free or, you know, the other hand, something that's longer. I mean, when they launched the app, you just could not even cast the content from your phone to your TV, which I mean, it's just a disaster. Even, you know, like a Russian anime app from 10 years ago was able to cast something from your phone to your TV and Quibi, which is a 2020 application in the era of COVID, isn't able to do that at least from the launch. Um, so that's a huge, huge issue. Yeah, I definitely think that the concerns that you raised there are much closer to the truth as to why it's failing as opposed to, you know, I think you can, I'm sure that a little bit of it has to do with COVID, but, but by and large, I think you're right. I think they would have run into the same issues regardless because of this weird place they put themselves in the market. And in terms of the marketing too, they really made some odd choices. They bought a lot of traditional television uh, advertising mm -hmm. time, like slots for, for Quibi. And it's like, that's not where your audience is. You're not looking for the people who are, you know, 40 plus watching CBS or whatever to tune into Quibi to watch, you know, shows from uh, these young creators and that are, you know, edgy and, and whatever, like that's not your audience at all. So I think that they could have spent that marketing money much better in, in places where their audience actually lives. And yeah, it's just too much of a buy-in for content that you can get for free somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. And even if you think about it, you know, in terms of the actual content, the sort of quick bite mentality, what is the quick bite that you're watching on your phone in those moments? You're not going on Netflix for a quick bite. You're not going on Disney plus or HBO for a quick bite. You're going on Instagram or TikTok. You're going to essentially low value content for that quick fix. So the reflex of going to Quibi, which allegedly is high quality content, is not going to be in the vernacular of most people. They're not going to think of, oh, let me watch this like edgy show right now in this 10 minute gap I have uh, between Starbucks runs. I feel like that's not really the mentality. And so that's another 
reason in my mind why this app is kind of failing at reaching um, critical mass. Yeah, so I suspect that Quibi is perhaps not long for this world, and uh, it, it'll go the way of uh, CISO and some mm-hmm. of the other the streaming services that have failed to start. Wait, so you're saying that it's not valuable to turn your phone 90 degrees and then see a different angle of a TV show? That's <laughs> not worth the $15? No, it's not worth it. Uh, all right, let's move on to our next uh, topic of conversation. Speaking of uh, launches and so forth, HBO Max, the HBO condom uh, brand, uh, launched uh, recently to middling success. I don't even know if, it, if it's successful. I mean, I love a lot of the content that they have on it, but I feel like because of the lack of original content, not a lot of people are talking about the launch of HBO Max. Yeah, I mean, that's another one of those things like it, it sort of had its ups and downs. It is a huge streaming service. It's an it's an incredibly deep library that rivals, you know, Netflix and, uh, and Amazon and Hulu and a lot of those other services because they have access to this entire back catalog of Warner Brothers films and television, CW, DC. They've got like Studio Ghibli. They've got uh, pretty much, you know, all these horror films like there's a lot of interesting content in there. But uh, yeah, the, the the opening slate of originals really wasn't anything to make note of. Honestly, like there wasn't anything really grabbing for people there. Like perhaps the closest thing they have coming is like Lovecraft Country down the road, which is you know an HBO thing, and that's not for a while yet. So I think that again, they kind of just launched and they were like hoping to ride on the success of having friends. Uh, and yeah. some other stuff. Yeah. Which, I mean, uh, you know, again, the the fact that COVID had meant that the reunion could not be filmed until at least summer. And then also there's a lot of confusion about, you know, who has HBO Max included in their bundle, who has to pay for it, what does it cost compared to other services and so forth. And the other thing is sort of like their marketing gimmicks, like the, obviously the big one that they did recently was the Snyder Cut for Justice League, which again, I, I kind of believe that the initial release, the Snyder Cut, Twitter hashtag was a bit of an astroturfing uh, technique. I, I do believe that uh, it wasn't a grassroots campaign of really diehard Justice League fans, which don't really exist. Well, at least Justice League fans obviously exist, but in this context of you know DC Universe uh, Justice League that was uh, widely panned by a lot of people, I really feel that it's more of a minority that you know the that was astroturfed into becoming a, a sort of a trending topic on Twitter uh, that became viral, and then as a marketing gimmick, uh, HBO. Time Warner is basically spending $30 million to finish the Snyder Cut, <laughs> which, I mean, okay, I'm, I'm sure that's a thing, but also it kind of diminishes the work of the other director. I just feel like it really yeah. isn't all that scratched out to me, but... Yeah, I feel like one of the other big issues with HBO Max is that it's sort of cannibalizing itself across different formats and different things. You've already got this DC Universe streaming service that they released pretty recently uh, with all of this original DC content, all of the back catalog of a lot of their cartoons and things like that. And they really were pushing that. And then less than a year later, they're releasing HBO Max, which by all rights should probably have all of that content on it. But it doesn't right now because it's exclusive to DC Universe, Mm -hmm. except for perhaps I think Doom Patrol is on HBO. But, you know, you try to look up, when you actually go to the DC section of HBO Max, there's very, very little content there. A lot of it is just random stuff from the 80s. And that's probably what a lot of people actually want out of this service, too. Yeah, it's this weird, like, double standard where they decide what is going to be exclusive to their platform and what isn't. I feel like that actually brings me to another topic, uh, just looking forward ahead at production stalling and so forth, is uh, a lot of the networks announced their fall and even winter lineup. I mean, uh, CW is most notable to 
already have announced their premiere dates for their new shows in January, meaning they're confident that by early 2021, they will already have content produced, new content that hasn't been produced as of now for 2021 of their major shows. It's not going to be like a small like quarantine, you know, Zoom TV show. It's going to be like Lois and Clark and all those other shows. And the reason why I bring that up is because if you look at the fall lineup, a lot of networks, including CBS and, and CW and NBC are buying already existing content to essentially plug the holes of their cheese grater uh, schedule from the fall lineup. So Swamp Thing, which is a DC Universe exclusive, is going to be airing linearly for the first time on CW this fall. And so it's interesting to look at what kind of content they're really sort of trying to get. They're getting a lot of uh, Canadian content, a lot of OTT content, and really buying back essentially second window uh, airing of those uh, of those shows to broadcast linearly on their channel. So it's very bizarre because obviously, historically speaking, it's always been the flipped version. It's always the networks that are creating content and then the second window goes internationally or on OTTs. And now we're at a place where because of the lack of original content being produced or upcoming original content being produced, they're forced to do the backflip of let us import international shows, kind of like what they did during the Rise Guild strike in 2008. And also let's import OTT shows from other networks. Yeah. I mean, the last thing I'll say about HBO Max is that it, it baffles me too that they already had a highly successful OTT in HBO Now slash HBO Go just with HBO content. And it had a very clear defined brand. It was all prestige content. It was the kind of stuff that people love to tune in and watch. They were able to charge the exact same amount of money for that as they were for an HBO Max subscription. But instead, they kind of just automatically upgraded everyone into HBO Max and rolled it over. And so they've just like eaten their own market again and hoped that adding the rest of this, you know, content to it is going to be good for them long term. But I don't know, that just seems kind of strange to me. I feel like they could have launched it with, you know, perhaps access to some HBO titles, but just using the HBO Max name, it really just muddles everything, I think, in terms of the branding and, you know, the audience that they're going for. Yeah, I mean, when they announced, I was on record on this podcast saying, uh, labeling it as HBO anything is just diluting the exclusive premium branding that HBO has built over 30 years, essentially, because if you look back at 20, uh, actually 25 plus years ago, you have that iconic, you know, swoop into the village, like HBO introduction of this special feature presentation, and then you had Oz and Sopranos and all those huge high-end ticket shows that are synonymous with HBO, right? It's not TV, it's HBO. That's a recurring motif for a lot of people. And they're completely diluting that with having this mega OTT service competing with Netflix, competing with Peacock, competing with Disney Plus and so forth with the HBO brand when most people don't associate friends with HBO in any way or Gossip Girl and HBO or any of those other shows. Yeah, I think they would have been better off calling it it's something like, you know, Warner Media or Warner Max or whatever. I think that they had discussions about that in the marketing process and and felt that like Warner Brothers wasn't really much of like a customer facing brand. It was, you know, more behind the scenes in the studios and that sort of thing. You know, in the same way that Disney is the opposite of that. Disney is such a customer facing thing that the name Disney Plus makes so much sense to them. So I don't know. It still seems a little questionable to me. It is extremely questionable, uh, especially that uh, condom wrapper logo that they have. But that's... Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, we all live with our mistakes. All of that said, I think I do have some optimism that it is the kind of service that can be good and, and can really function uh, once they make some corrections to it. So Absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, they, they definitely have a lot of original content upcoming. So I don't I don't count uh, HBO Max as dead, uh, unlike uh, Quibi. 
Well, uh, before we go, don't forget that we are on Patreon. We really appreciate everyone's continued support there, even over our break. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get access to our Paper Patron podcast, our cheat sheets, and there's a dedicated Paper Tea slot just for our Patreon supporters. So get on it at paperteam.co slash Patreon, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. Thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 178. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have your own TV running questions that you would like answered on this very podcast, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week, we return to our Insider TV Writing Program series with a deep dive into the Nickelodeon Writing Program. There's a lot of big changes happening, so make sure you tune in to hear all of that. It's going to be a great episode, so see you next week. All right, see you then.